In every American city, intimate untold histories live far underground, six feet under to be more precise. The residents of these underground communities may be forgotten by some of their above ground neighbors, but they remain the faithful keepers of family secrets. Their bodies belie unknown tales of battlefield valor. Their undying love for wives and husbands and children is apparent to every visitor. And when considered all together, their presence in certain neighborhoods and the condition of their surroundings, the upkeep or the lack thereof, tell a long, lovely, complex, and often indicting tale of a city's evolution. In Baltimore, that evolution is one of class and race, the city cemeteries illustrating a demarcation between the claimed and the unclaimed, the free and the enslaved, the wealthy and the working class, the religious and the corporate. And though those binaries often blur, the fact remains that even in 2017, one can still visit Mount Auburn Cemetery, once the only place in all of Baltimore where black residents could be buried. Then visit Greenmount Cemetery, one of the country's earliest urban rural cemeteries designed for the affluent Baltimorean, the final resting place of Johns Hopkins, Enoch Pratt, and John Peabody, for whom some of the city's most esteemed institutions are namesakes, and realize that in Greenmount, the only known African-Americans interred are buried alongside members of the wealthy white households for which they once worked. That contrast is just as stark in 2017 as it was in the 1800s, when both Mount Auburn and Greenmount were established. But visiting both evokes a similar feeling. Every tombstone talks. The hum of history vibrates underfoot. Each epitaph and inscription can, at any moment, become the genealogical clue you never realized you needed. And with time and care, a curious meander along the mausoleums can unearth the greatest stories ever buried. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, Episode 17, A Series of Burial Plot Twists. The first thing you should know about African-American burial history in Baltimore is that until the latter half of the 1800s, traditional funeral services were denied the city's black residents. Proper cemetery burial didn't become possible until 1872, when Sharp Street Memorial United Methodist Church founded Mount Auburn Cemetery in the Westport Mount Winans community of Southwest Baltimore. I think it's instructive to think about burial segregation in the form of burial rights. This is Dr. Cammie Fletcher, Associate Professor of African American History at Delaware State University. My research goes all the way back to the colonial period. The colony, this Maryland colony, was established 1632. By 1701, you had this law saying that the vestry, you know, this person has been put in charge um, of this colony, is responsible for documenting, putting in a ledger, everyone that has died except Negroes and mulattoes. So right there, you, ha you have this idea where some people can control their death, right? They can be buried, you know, where they want to be. They matter in death, and some people don't. That inequity persisted for over a century longer. If Black Baltimoreans were able to claim the remains of their loved ones at all, they couldn't give them proper Christian burials. Instead, Blacks were overwhelmingly buried in Potter's Field. It got its name from the Bible where you have people that are strangers or people that are unclaimed or foreigners. 
not having a place to be buried, and they're just basically given a number and buried until someone comes to claim them. This cemetery ended up being filled up, and they moved around the city based on the needs of Blacks. Eventually, the trustees of Sharp Street Church established Mount Auburn Cemetery on 34 acres of land. I, I love this cemetery. I'm, I'm not into cemeteries necessarily, like, but I, I'm into this cemetery. This is Mrs. Jean Hitchcock, chairwoman of the Mount Auburn Cemetery Board of Directors. Ms. Hitchcock was the first person we met in our cemetery research. She met us one afternoon in Westport to take a short tour of the grounds in Mount Auburn. And one of the reasons I'm into the cemetery, obviously, is because of the history here. And, um, and because my ancestors are also born, are buried here. And it is one of the most beautiful pieces of property in the city. As you can see, as we get closer to that hill, we're very high up. And we can look down over the city and over the harbor. Um, and so when you think of a cemetery as being peaceful and with a lot of serenity then you can't get much better than Mount Auburn Cemetery for its location and its history, I think. Mount Auburn is beautiful. A stately iron gate encloses it. Trees offer shade to some of the stones. Paved walkways wind along the hilly sprawl. And, as Miss Hitchcock notes, the downtown waterfront is visible from its highest point. The other thing that's nice is the train comes by. Did you hear that? And so it can be really quiet, and then all of a sudden you hear this train whistle. That's cool, isn't it? (laughs) It's very cool. Poetic even when you consider all that trains have come to symbolize historically. Freedom, the afterlife, an ability to move upward and onward. You see that the tombstones are all a skeleton, are not upright. Do you know why? You want me to tell you why? (laughs) It's because back then, caskets weren't lined. So what... So over time, they totally disintegrate. And so it's essentially a sinkhole under there. There's nothing there anymore. There's no casket. The bodies have disintegrated. And so it's a sinkhole. And so it um, tilts. The tombstones tilt. Some rows of headstones we saw were so tilted and crowded together they looked like mouths full of crooked teeth. So if you're embarking upon a restoration project then you have to you have to level the terrain the most important thing right now is to keep the grass and the weeds from taking over which is a monumental task because most um, landscaping companies they have a problem with their equipment the equipment on the other side it's leveler on this side this is the older side uh, my great-grandparents are in here somewhere. But on this side, as you can see, the terrain is much more difficult because this is the older section, I think. Mrs. Hitchcock has been at the fore of Mount Auburn's restoration and fundraising initiatives for decades now. 
Her efforts, particularly during the time when she served as deputy mayor for former Mayor Martin O'Malley between 1999 and 2007, have been integral to even this much progress at Mount Auburn. In a follow-up interview, she told us, My dad used to be on the board and used to be a volunteer custodian for the cemetery, so I have deep roots in the cemetery. Then when I became deputy mayor, uh, the mayor at the time, Martin O'Malley, was very interested in the preservation of the cemetery because it was sort of on a downgrade. Many of the members of the church had really become older and couldn't... um, manage it the way they could. My father passed away, so it it was suffering from a lack of attention. The entranceway and the gate, the financing of that was through a city bond, I think. I actually have pictures of him and the housing commissioner and the police folks actually cleaning the cemetery and mowing the lawn. Jeans and shirts rolled up and lawnmowers, they were out there. They did that several times. The uh, Secretary of Public Safety and Correctional Services at the time was a very forward-thinking person. A part of his vision was to train inmates for job opportunities. And so he felt that to train them in landscaping was a laudable objective. What we found is the inmates actually came to appreciate the value of what they were doing. So that worked very nicely for, you know, the years that was really up and running. The other thing that was nice about that project is that the church members became involved. They would take lunch out to the inmates. We invited them to church once a year. Um, So it became a kind of community effort, a very broad community effort. That was good. That was that was, that was a good part of the project. As with everything else related to the upkeep of the cemetery, the inmate custodial initiative was expensive to sustain. Ms. Hitchcock says grounds work, since it ended, has presented some obstacles. Then we have to constantly worry about pest eradication. Groundhogs like to come in there and barrel holes and just have a good time. Uh, they're having a party out there right now, I think. What a lot of people don't understand is Mount Auburn Cemetery, because it was founded as a ministry and not necessarily a business, um, we found in the deeds that some people were buried for free. Reverend Carrie James, senior pastor of Sharp Street Memorial United Methodist Church. And some people were buried for a dollar. And so it wasn't about the money and it wasn't about perpetual care, but it was about um, this is the only place where we can bury um, African-Americans. And if you have the money, great. And if you don't have the money, we're going to make sure that um, this is a place where you can be buried. That's part of the struggle with the cemetery, that we don't have that perpetual care. And so now we're trying to have fundraisers, trying to receive grants, trying to receive whatever funding we can um, in order to make sure that we upkeep the cemetery and restore it. We met Pastor James, along with Sharp Street Memorial and Auburn Cemetery historian, Ms. Dorothy Dougherty, at the church, which houses burial plot deeds and other cemetery artifacts in its archival center. Ms. Dougherty also happens to be Mrs. Hitchcock's mother. She and Pastor James told us all about the notable public figures buried at Mount Auburn, including boxer Joe Gans, Afro-American newspaper founder John H. Murphy Sr., Katie Williams, first African-American woman mortician in Baltimore City was buried there. My um, husband's father and grandfather were buried there. 
They were <clears throat> prominent in the city at the time because they were active in the community. And that's what the cemetery originally housed, people who were prominent in the city as well as across the board. The only place you had where you could come to be buried in dignity was Mount Auburn Cemetery. And we do still have burials there. It's not closed, per se. January uh, 2017 was the most recent one, and we still honor all the, the lots that family members have purchased. And again, the vision, the goal is to also mm -hmm. uh, remodel the cemetery with um, a columbarium so we can do that as well. And uh, instead of going out where uh, most of the lots are already claimed, uh, build one that can go up um, to hold ashes and, mm -hmm. and, and so forth. And when it was originally founded, the name was the City of the Dead for Colored People. Mount Auburn received its historic landmark designation in 1982. Pastor James and Miss Dougherty, along with the cemetery's board of directors and Sharp Street church members, are committed to ensuring that interest in the cemetery's historical and social value remains high. One of the many ways they've pursued that goal is by partnering with the Maryland State Archives Office to digitize the cemetery's extensive burial records. The cemetery uh, had a long history of I don't know, a neglect, for lack of a better word. It was not terribly accessible. It was terribly overgrown. Um, there had been vandalism over the years. It was just not, it wasn't safe to walk around in, and it just, you know, wasn't a great place. If, if your loved one was buried there, it was really hard to go and memorialize or visit the grave. In 2012, Ms. Sheeds joined the effort to make the cemetery's burial records more accessible to families and historians looking for specific persons who may be buried there. I went out in the cemetery many times over, I don't know, the last few years and literally walked around and took photographs of tombstones with my iPhone. We were able to use the um, information that was in the burial registers and in the database in order to match up the GPS coordinates with the information that was in the burial register and then present it online so that people had kind of a general idea of where these graves were located within the cemetery. So I figure if I can get you to within 10 feet of a tombstone in a roughly 40-acre cemetery, I'm doing pretty good. As of May 2017, nearly 50,861 burials have been identified. There are an estimated 55,000 burials at Mount Auburn. For more on how to search the digital archives, visit mountauburn.msa.gov, billiongraves.com, or findagrave.com. In addition to making records searchable online, Mount Auburn also courts increased community interest by holding an annual service inside the cemetery. The church has sunrise service on Easter morning, and it is very lovely to stand in that cemetery as the sun rises. Um, and all of the um, religious implications of that um, makes it a, a, a special moment, too. It's easy to imagine Mount Auburn as an hallowed place. We didn't spend much time there, but in our brief walk, 
we saw veterans of the Spanish-American War, World Wars I and II, in Vietnam. We saw clergy, children, beloved wives and husbands, whole families enclosed by rectangular cement and stone borders. It was clear that all the burial plot clients had taken pride and care in ensuring that they and their most beloved would be laid to rest among members of their own community. Dr. Cammie Fletcher says community is as important in death as it is for many in life. Death is still, and we argue, still one of the last bastions of segregation. Um, even right now, if someone dies, they're looking for a funeral director that can meet their cultural death needs. Burial segregation, it definitely doesn't exist in the legal form that it did. But again, I would argue that culturally, yeah, you definitely still have um, you know, people wanting to be buried together because families and communities, and that's the thing about cemeteries, cemeteries reflect their communities. Communities are still segregated. So then the cemetery itself in that way is still segregated because it's culturally and, you know, like I said, it reflects the community. We've taken you to the oldest black cemetery in Baltimore City. Next up, the first independently operated urban garden cemetery in Baltimore. Greenmount. On your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. One of the advantages of Greenmount is when around the 1850s, they put up a wall around the cemetery simply to mark the borders of the property. Now, over the years, that wall is kind of the security blanket for people that would want to come in. We've seen grave sites overturned and all that. Mount Auburn isn't as lucky. That's the problem. They are literally wide open down there. Wayne Schomburg is a retired Baltimore City history teacher. He's been leading tours of Greenmount Cemetery for over 30 years. The cemetery opened in 1839, okay? And uh, it's an example of what's called an urban-rural cemetery, sometimes called a garden cemetery. And the difference is this was a huge departure from previous burial spots because before 1839 in Baltimore, if you died... You were a member of the church. You got buried in the church graveyard. So this is a whole different uh, uh, ball game. The cemetery is nonprofit, owned by the lot holders. But most interesting in 1838, if you think at the time, was this cemetery was to be open to anyone who wanted to be buried here. In regards of race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, anybody could be buried here. Now, the, the catch to this whole story is that although it's open to anybody that wants to be buried here, the catch was the cost of the cemetery lot. The cemetery lot was $100, and that got you 12 graves, okay? So it was a lot of 12 graves. But if you are a working-class Baltimorean, you know, you're offloading cargo down a Pratt Street or you're working in a mill, and you're making 2 or $3 a week, you can't afford to be buried here. So in the long run, this becomes a cemetery where upper-middle-class, upper-class Baltimore are buried is, is what happens here at Greenmount. Now, there's a couple of other cemeteries nearby. Again, if, if you're probably familiar, if you go straight across North Avenue to the end, there's Baltimore Cemetery. That's the working man's version of Greenmount. It opened 10 years later. The lots are smaller. The lots were cheaper. I should interject here to explain how lovely Greenmount Cemetery really is. At 68 acres, it's twice the size of Mount Auburn, with just an estimated 10,000 more burials. Like Mount Auburn, it's mostly closed to newcomers now though there's still room in the crypt. But perhaps the most glaring physical difference between the two is how well-tended Greenmount is 
expansive lawns with lush green grass are regularly serviced by landscapers on riding mowers. At least one worker was out mowing while we visited one April morning. Long, carefully designed paths make the walk toward any notable Baltimorean's burial plot very easy to find. And there are maps available to help you find them. Large mausoleums with up to a dozen burial plots inside line many paths. Tall stonework monuments tower up from the ground. And among even the oldest plots, there are no sinkholes. Taking the Greenmount tour with Mr. Schomburg was pretty fun. Take me outside, sit in the green garden. Nobody out there, but it's so good now. All right, now I'm going to show you the most popular monument in Greenmount Cemetery. So you have to jump over the wall. And let me ask you two this first, because you two are a younger generation than uh, a lot of the people that take the tour. Do you know where a Ouija board is? Mm -hmm. Okay. Play with a Ouija board? Okay. It was invented in Baltimore, 1892, a guy by the name of William Fold. It was manufactured in Baltimore all the way up until the 1960s. The guy that got the first patent to manufacture the board and sell it to the public was a guy by the name of Bond. And uh, his grave is right over here, and you'll see what it is. It is a Ouija board. And the, the monument is relatively But new. even as we heard fascinating anecdotes about Enoch Pratt, founder of one of the oldest free library systems in the country, portrait sculptor William Henry Reinhardt, whose own art tops his grave, philanthropists like Johns Hopkins and George Peabody, and in a twist of chilling irony, John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Lincoln. The elephant in the graveyard was never forgotten. We're going to walk over here, and this, this one's a really great story. This is the first burial at Greenmount. This was in 1839. Watch your step, don't trip over the... When you cut through the lot, it's, it's like an obstacle course at times. So this beautifully fenced lot is a lot with the Whitridge family. John Whitridge was a physician, okay? And when the cemetery opened, he decided he was going to buy two lots. This is a double lot. And that way, his family would be all in one place. And this was 1839, and he figured, well, I got nothing to worry about. I won't need these for a long time. What he didn't know was his two-year-old daughter, Olivia, would die in December of 1839, and that's the first burial here at Greenmount. Now, what's really interesting, and we didn't know this until about maybe three years ago, a little bit longer, was that the Whitridges owned a slave, and her name was Patty Adivis, and here's her marker. What we know about her was Dr. Whitridge bought her from another woman in Baltimore in 1839. She served as a nurse to Dr. Whitridge, all the way to the rest of her life. Now, what we don't know is about her is whether the Whitridges freed her before 1864 or it came, you know, when the official uh, manumission came in 1864. We don't know a lot about this, this uh, young lady. But anyway, she lived with the Whitridges, and when she died, they insisted that she be buried in with the family lot. There's another one I'll show you later on that was basically the same thing. It was a woman that worked for a family in Baltimore, and they insisted that she be buried with them. This is in the 1920s. I would imagine there are other African Americans buried here. I think there are probably some that are on their own, but I haven't, I haven't seen anything. And of course, there's six, seven thousand people here, so it's. Uh, and I would hope somewhere along the lines, eventually, we'll be able to find out more. 
Up next, we'll turn our attention away from sites of burial and toward some of the people who actually did the burying. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. You've heard a lot about 19th and early 20th century cemeteries in Baltimore, but by now you may be also wondering just who was doing all this burying, particularly in African-American communities, if the typical services associated with funerals were relatively new to black Baltimoreans post-slavery. Services like embalming, casket procurement, and funeral service planning. Then how did people break into the field? Here's Dr. Cami Fletcher again. Because most blacks were enslaved, it was either learning it during slavery or being apprenticed. Because Baltimore has such a large black population, in the 1840s, um, the free black population even outnumbered the enslaved black population. Whites did not want to bury blacks, period. Death is connected to one's culture. Even now, even even today. Um, so you had a need to understand death cultural norms of the black community, and there was a need to bury black people properly and decently. And so if you had any type of carpentry skills or if you were a day laborer or if you were a driver, uh, this was a trade. So you could kind of pick it up and, you know, feel that need and do it. You didn't need a lot of capital. You didn't need any type of license. You could just do this work. During the Reconstruction period, right, so slavery's over, it's 1865, you know, 1870, and what professions do you have for black folks coming out of this period? You have teachers, you have preachers, you do have journalists, you have the black newspapers, and you have undertakers. So one of the reasons, yeah, that they are held in this esteem is wealth, but they're they're wealthy, but they're not estranged or separate from the community. You know, in a way that we think about rich black people now, they're not living in our community. You know, they're kind of, um, they're apart from us. Are they giving back? Yeah, maybe. But these people had their businesses in the community. They lived in the community we spoke to one of the descendants of one such funeral home pioneer, Mr. Victor March Sr., president and CEO of March Funeral Homes, currently the largest independent funeral home on the East Coast. The company celebrates its 60th anniversary this year. March, the actual funeral home, was started by my parents, and um, they actually opened their funeral home on January the 2nd, 1957. At the turn of the war. Uh, my dad had dropped out of school because jobs became available during wartime. And uh, he took a job building munitions for the war. And my dad, who was very light-skinned, kind of blondish hair, blue eyes, he was mistaken to, to be white. And when they found out that he was not white, um, he was fired from the munitions company. And uh, he became immediately eligible for the draft. And he went to fight in the Battle of Normandy. During that time, there were three other uh, soldiers that they 
made a pledge to each other that if they ever made it through the war, that they were going to start a, a business or, or use their GI benefits to get a college education. Each of the four of them decided that they were going to go to mortuary school. They made that pledge to each other, uh, and actually my dad was the only one who actually fulfilled that dream. William Carrington March finished mortuary school in 1946, but it would take another 11 years before he would open his own funeral home. The business was a slow build. The first year he was in business, he and my mom did two funerals. The second year he was in business, they did four funerals. In the meantime, my dad continued to work uh, in the evenings from 11 to 7, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., uh, for 30 years at the Postal Service. It may have taken a long time for the business to turn a large profit, but March Funeral Homes wasn't founded with a financial windfall in mind. Back then, of course, there were firms that were established that only took care of the cream of the crop, or they saw themselves only catering to a specific type of clientele based on financial abilities. Um, and my dad's philosophy has always been he didn't care. And back there in the, in the day when they used to deliver milk to your house, um, the cream would always rise to the top uh, of the bottle. And so there was always a little cream, but there was always a lot of milk. And his philosophy always was was that he'll care for the, for the milk, let someone else care for the cream if that's the way they want to be. So... That philosophy really took off, and after, like I said, the fifth or sixth year, business really started to pick up, and by the tenth year they were in business, we were the number one firm in the city. Mr. March recalls a childhood where, for him and his siblings, funeral work was at the fore. Baltimore is known for its uh, marble steps, and so we would have to scrub the steps. You know, uh, every few days you had to get out with your Ajax and your scrub brush, and you would scrub and wash the steps down, and um, polishing the brass, uh, the brass rails, and the knockers. We had to do that. Uh, moving flowers. That was some of the things we we did uh, early as children, and as we we got older, um, we took on other roles. We we worked up through the time we went away to college. And then after that, we came back. (laughs) Because of his lifelong intimate vantage of funeral work in Baltimore's black communities, Mr. March is in a unique position to comment on how things have changed in the city over the years. During the era of segregation, um, uh, the black community um, had its own power centers. It had its own um, businesses. Desegregation was not our friend. We did have a power base 
um, that would uh, allow for black doctors, lawyers, you know, funeral homes, um, and, and all services that were related. As a result of desegregation, we've pretty much lost all that. And it, it's pretty much uh, down to three, I'll say, industries that are left that still cater to the African-American community. Funeral homes are one. There's still a very distinct um, um, color boundary, I would say, where African Americans prefer African American funeral homes because they weren't allowed to go to white funeral homes. That isn't the only reason black communities still prefer black-owned funeral homes. The funeral itself within the black community is, is celebrated much differently than it is in the majority community. The term homegoing originated from the fact that slaves were not allowed to have funerals. It was illegal for them to gather. So when the death occurred and the cover of darkness, they would gather and celebrate the fact that that person was going home, that death freed them from slavery, and their spirit was able to go back to the motherland. So it was able to go back home to Africa. So the term going home originated from, from that philosophy. Back in the early days, they used to put uh, a penny on top of each eye. That was to pay the fare to go back home. We incorporate music, we incorporate dance, and we celebrate that life. And so the funeral is a celebration of life and the freedom of now being free to to go back home. The March family now owns and operates King Memorial Park Cemetery. Founded in 1973 and named for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., It's the largest African-American-owned and operated cemetery in the country, at 155 acres in total. March Funeral Homes is still very much a family affair, not just in name only, but also in ownership and daily operations. The burial industry in Baltimore is, like so many others, still emblematic of the city's inequities, but is also one of the oldest and best examples of Black Baltimore's entrepreneurial ingenuity the imprint of which can certainly be tracked from cradle to grave. This episode was produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music is produced by Mark Gunnery. For photos related to Mount Auburn Cemetery, Greenmount Cemetery, March Funeral Homes, and the people you just heard talking about them, visit RiseOfCharmCity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. 
You can find and listen to The Rise of Charm City as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers.